So if you missed last week, we began a series in the book of Numbers. This is going to be a six-week series that we're moving through. This will take us up through the first Sunday in June. Last week, we surveyed 10 chapters, the first 10 chapters of Numbers, and we saw this basic principle that God is central to the lives of his people. And there were several chapters, again, that we surveyed. We saw this through the covenant that he has made going all the way back to Abraham, then into the the nation of Israel, and now with his people as they're on the march. Uh, God is central in all things. Um, We saw this in particular with even the arrangement of the camp and the way that the book of Numbers gives details for this. Now, last week, I meant to have this slide in the screen, up on the screen for you, but uh, if you can see that from where you're sitting, uh, this is just one artist's sort of help at what was taking place with the camp. And you can see in the very middle, the very middle of the camp would be the tabernacle. And then just to the bottom side of that, which is actually the eastern direction, that would have been Moses and Aaron and their families on the east side because the tabernacle opened to that side. Those other three small squares there were the other Levites who were in charge of tabernacle duties, and they would help with taking down the tent, packing up the furniture, getting it moved, and then setting everything back up. Then the 12 tribes that we talked through are specifically ordered, and you can see, again, just one person's rendition, but It helps us at least get the idea that all of the camps, all of the tribes are set up in a systematic way and all to be facing the center where God is. And so that's how the camp would have arranged and then it takes off, marches, and sets back up in maybe something like that order. You can go ahead and take that down. We also saw in the following chapters the commands that God has given And those commands are about him. And we might look at it and say, wow, these commands are just kind of different than what we're used to today, which they are. Uh, God is setting up a nation and he is arranging the nation, this ragtag group of people who were slaves in Egypt and giving them order and structure right away so that they can form this government, this nation that is centered around him. This week... After having seen God as being central and commanded to be central, this week we see the people, if you will. The eyes were on God last week. Now Moses turns his attention and says, now you need to see the people who were in a covenant relationship with him, and and they are failures. And what we see is in their hearts, they decentralize God And they do it through the acts of complaining and grumbling. Now, we don't want to just finish in numbers because we are not old covenant people. We are new covenant people. So we're going to look at the complaining and grumbling. But then Jesus picks up on this in John chapter 6, how he is enough for us. And so the sermon is going to start off in numbers mainly at chapter 11, and then we'll end up in John chapter 6, right before we partake of the Lord's Supper. So to get us started, what is one sign that Jesus is not at the center of your life? Last week's principle is God is to be central. His glory, his honor, 
He ought to be central in every one of our lives simply for who he is. Then we could go beyond with what he's done and brought us into a covenant relationship with him and brought us out of our own slavery to sin and forgiven us of sins. What would be a sign then in our lives that God is not central to everything that we do? Well, very simply, one sign would be complaining and grumbling. That's what we see here in Numbers 11. So three points to the sermon. I'll give them to you as we start. Um, Let me give you a brief survey of what's happening in chapter 10, actually, before I give you those three points. Last week, we finished up at chapter 10, verse 10. Those trumpets, they were a reminder of God's presence. Verse 11, all the way down to verse 28, the people of Israel are on the move now. And as they're on the move... They move orderly and systematically to the next place where God is leading them. Verses 29 and following talk about a man named Hobab. Um, I'm glad my my parents didn't name me Hobab, and I'm thinking my boys are glad they're not named Hobab either. But Hobab, he's here. He is a brother-in-law to Moses, and he's actually a non-Jew, if you will, Moses comes alongside of Hobab and says, hey, will you go with us into the wilderness and be eyes for us? And Hobab at first uh, declines the offer. Moses presses in a little bit more and says, please do that and we will give you uh, the blessings that God gives to us. And so he actually incorporates into the covenant community of Israel and actually in Judges chapter one, we see that Moses's in-laws, the Midianites, the Kenites, actually inherit some of the land with Judah. They've got Hobab in their camp, and then as Thomas read earlier, God is moving. Whenever the cloud moves, they move. Whenever the cloud stops, they stop. And now they've come to a place where they've stopped, and complaining starts. The wheels start to fall off. So point number one is simply complaining about hardships. Let's pick it up in verse one. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Okay, this is the first episode of complaining that we'll cover this morning. There's not much detail about it, simply three verses. But we need to keep in mind that this particular generation of people have seen God's mighty acts. We could say that this particular generation of people have seen more of God's mighty acts than any generation preceding it. When you think about going back to Egypt just over a year previous to this event, They have seen the 10 mighty acts of God with the plagues. They've seen the parting of the Red Sea. They've seen God's presence with the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. They've seen God's presence on Mount Sinai swirling around it with smoke and shaking the mountain. They've woken up to manna in the mornings now for approximately a year. These people have seen more acts of God than any other generation leading up to this. And God has given them a promise. 
God has told them, I'm leading you from Egypt and I am going to take you on a journey. And the journey from Sinai to the promised land by foot should only take about two to four weeks. It would be like us walking up to Mackinac from here. So they're on a journey. They have this time frame. And with chapter 10, everything seems to be going orderly and well. And just a day or two into their journey from Sinai, the complaining in the ears of the Lord begins. Now, this section and some following sections is just about that complaining. What is complaining? Complaining is not simply disagreement with our current circumstances. There are circumstances that we should disagree about, even push back on. There are also times for us to go to the Lord and lament our situations in life. The Psalms shows us how to come to the Lord and some would even say complain to the Lord or lament to the Lord. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? You read the Psalms and, and you hear this this. Lack of content with what's going on, and yet they're bringing it to the Lord in a respectful way. When we talk about complaining, complaining is something different from that altogether. Complaining expresses selfish discontentment about God's sovereign plan for my life. It's a selfish discontentment, even about the hardships. And this kind of complaining is sin. It's a selfish way of saying, I don't like it that God has placed me here in this part of life. I don't like this circumstance. I don't like this person. I don't like this event. I don't like this sickness, this task that God has brought into my life. It is a bad idea. It's a bad thing. I shouldn't have to do it. And instead of looking to God for his purposes in the middle of the moment, I'm looking at the hardship with a bad attitude and I'm saying, I deserve better than this. So let me give you an example. When I was about second grade, it was my job to trim around all of the trees with the push mower. And with that push mower, as a second or third grader, I felt like I was kind of walking around like this in the yard. And my brother and my dad, they had the cush job. I had to trim around the peach trees and the crepe myrtles and the bushes. They got to sit on the riding lawnmower and just make circles around the whole yard. And I remember that there were times where I would go to my dad and, and say things like, Dad, this doesn't seem fair. All right, now, I'm going to put this in a category for you, and you might, we might split hairs over it. If I'm going to God and I'm saying, God, this doesn't seem fair, the Bible seems to be okay with that as you read the Psalms. This is how you can communicate to God. You can say, God, this is hard. This is a burden. How long is this going to go on, God? I'm bringing this to you. And there were times where I would go to my dad and say, Dad, this doesn't seem fair. This is hard. There are other times where I would go across the lawn with that lawnmower and I would have this grumbling, complaining, self-righteous attitude. Those lazy bums get to ride on that tractor and I have to be the one that does all the work. Why is it me? I think there's a difference between the two. And I think just by our experience, we know when our mind is consumed with selfishness about ourselves, self-absorbed. 
And here's the complaining that is taking place in the camp. Jude, verses 14 through 16, talks about this. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all. And notice how many times the word ungodly comes up, all right? And to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, that's the second time, that they have committed in such an ungodly way, that's the third time, and of all the harsh things that ungodly, there's number four, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now you would expect these people to be murderers, you know, the sexually deviant, but who are they? Who are the ungodly ones? The grumblers, the malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Grumbling and complaining is ungodly. It it is apart from God's character. And for us to enter into it, therefore, complaining is sin. And so how does God respond? Well, in verse 3, he hears them. His anger is kindled to the point that he sends fire and starts scorching the outside parts of the camp. The people then cry out, and Moses, in Christ-like intercession, prays to God on their behalf, and God relents from the judgment. The place is called Tabera, which means burning. Complaining about hardships. Move into section 2. There's complaining about cravings, and we'll keep moving through this now. In verse 4, it says now that the rabble was among them. Who is the rabble? Commentators suggest that the rabble are, again, non-Jews who have come with the nation out of Egypt. Could have been disenfranchised Egyptians, could have been people from other countries who were serving as slaves. Well, there is this group that is among the Jews. They have come out, and it says that they had a strong craving And the people of Israel also wept again. They join in and they say, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. That all sounds pretty good. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Keep in mind... God has told them, I am leading you to a land two to four weeks away. And this land is characterized as a land that is flowing with milk and honey. This is just a short season, if you will. It's like a mist or a vapor that we read about in James 4. This is life. It's a short time that God has for us. And there's cravings that come along. They complain about the food that they do have. They're saying, all we have is this manna. Moses goes on to say, well, let me just tell the reader what manna is, verses 7 through 9. Now, the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of delium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handfuls or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Now, I can think of a lot worse to have to eat on a camping trip. I can think of, you know, aluminum cans that are brought along on the camping trip and somebody pops it open and it's spam or something like that. 
This is manna that God has provided. It's bread. It can be made into cakes. It can be made into loaves. Different forms of this bread can be eaten. And basically what Moses is telling us here is that the manna is not that bad. It's a gift from God. Anything that comes from the hand of God, that's going to certainly be better than spam. And it's fresh each morning. But for another two to four weeks, you can handle this. This is your journey that you're on. So what's happening here with the people? Instead of looking forward, God's people are starting to look in their rearview mirror rather than looking ahead at what God has promised. When life gets hard, the past starts to look a whole lot better than it ever was. And for Israel, the days of Egypt, we know that they were not easy days. The opening chapter in Exodus tells us about baby boys being drowned in the Nile River as Egypt tries to control the population of the Jews. Their slavery was getting harder and harder as the government is cutting their resources and saying, we're not going to bring the resources to you to make these rocks or these mud mud bricks. You have to go get them yourself. The taskmasters are getting more and more cruel so that at the end of Exodus 2, It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to the Lord. So the question is, was the past better for them? Oh, sure, they had the Nile River flowing through Egypt and maybe after a long day of work at night, somebody could go out and go fishing and catch some fish. Maybe they had some gardens there. But was life better for them? The answer is no. And folks, a lot of times what we do is we romanticize the past. And there are certainly good memories about the past. But what God is calling these people to is the promise that he has laid out before them. Keep your eyes on the promise that's ahead of you. And for us as Christians... We are on this journey as well, and we can think back to times, and we can remember sitting on the front porch on a swing. We can remember times around the fireplace in the backyard. We can remember the moments that were good, but actually there were hours and minutes during those times of life that were filled with hardship, and what God is calling us to is not to look back on the past on things, but to continually look forward, and so our perspective as Christians is we are pilgrims on a journey, and we're looking forward to that land that God has given to us. God has promised us the new heavens and the new earth. And for us as Christians, this is not it for us. We're moving forward. Well, the grumbling and complaining has an effect on Moses. Look at verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And remember that picture. It's a campground there, packed. The anger of the Lord blazed hotly and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burdens of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? So you can see what's going on. This is having an effect on Moses and he's 
getting a little sarcastic. Why am I their mom carrying these little suckling people around in the wilderness? Why did you give this burden to me? Two million people. So continue on, verse 13. Look at Moses' perspective. Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and they say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. And if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Okay. One principle about grumbling and complaining is that the past always looks better. Another principle is this. Grumbling can be an occasion when leaders lose perspective and want to quit. How am I supposed to fix this situation, God? That's what a leader feels like. And yet God had not called Moses to be the supply agent for all of these people. What God had said is, I want you to simply lead these people. I will be the one who supplies. And so oftentimes what happens for those who are in leadership is that when they hear grumbling and complaining, they think that they have to be the fix-it people for them. And actually what leaders often need to do is just sort of step back, get out of the way, and let God take care of them. A leader can get deeply discouraged. Now, you might be thinking, Nate, are you standing on a not-so-subtle soapbox right now suggesting that we are a grumbling and complaining church? No, I'm not saying that. But I think it's just right for us to collectively understand that for the health of our church, our family, we need to know that complaining takes a toll on our leaders, your small group leaders, your teachers, your pastors. Think about their wives as well. Moses is not without fault here. He's lost his perspective by putting their problems on his shoulders. And he's asking the question, how am I supposed to fix this? Well, what does God do in response to the situation? First, God provides Moses uh, with help for his weaknesses. Look at verse 16. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone." So call 70 elders, bring them to the tabernacle. I'm going to give them the spirit that I put on you. So verse 24, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So Here's these elders in front of the tabernacle. God shows that the spirit is coming down on them and the Bible says that they prophesy and we're not exactly sure what this is. In 1 Samuel 10, you might remember Saul received um, spirits and had prophesying that take pl took place and he went into this sort of trance. I think all that we need to realize here is that the people know that these 70 men, they go through this moment and it's obvious that they have the Spirit of God on them. 
the chapter finishes out here where there's two other men, Eldad and Medad. They're in the camp and they're prophesying while the other ones have stopped. And somebody comes and tells Joshua, Joshua, there's two guys that are still prophesying out there. They haven't stopped. So Joshua goes and tells Moses, hey, aren't you going to tell these guys to stop? And Moses at this point, he's like, no way. This is a blessing. Joshua thinks that this might diminish Moses' leadership. So verse 29, Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. One of the resting places for me as a pastor is that in the new covenant, I know that you who are true believers have the spirit of God on you. And when we get together and when we worship or when we get together and have to work through hard things, one of the confidences that your leaders have is that when the word of God is used by the spirit of God, that will produce change in your lives. And yes, complaining and grumbling, that can get old. But one of the things that I just want to encourage you with as you go through life and interact with people is that when the Spirit of God is in a Christian's life, you can step back and you can see Moses' wish fulfilled. God is in them. God will do the work in their lives. All right, but what about the people? Continuing with the story, God addresses the complaining of the people concerning their food. So go back to verse 18. He says, say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall, eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Why? Here it is. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, have wept before him, saying, why did we come out of Egypt? Now that phrase tells it all. These people, in just a short time, have flip-flopped in their hearts. At Sinai, God's presence was with them, dwelt among them, they worshipped him. But in just a short journey, when the hardship begins... Their grumbling and complaining comes out. And the Bible says that their complaining is an act in which they are rejecting the Lord who is now dwelling in the midst of them. They're rejecting his plan to come out of Egypt and go to a new land. If we could just hone in a little bit more, this is at the heart of complaining. Complaining is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of his sovereign plan in your life. Why do I have to deal with this parent or this child in my life? Why do I have to deal with this husband or this wife in my life? Why do I have to be living in this terrible time, this terrible world? It's, it's got nothing that I enjoy and instead of going to God with your pain and lamenting to him, instead of going to God and asking him for help, 
we complain and grumble about our lot in life. And what we need to remember is God has sovereignly placed us in 2023. He is taking us on a journey and this moment, this relationship, this hardship, this culture, this illness, it's been given by God's sovereign purposes were to follow Jesus through it and were to depend on him for the strength to go through and finish this task. The people of Israel, they've lost all that kind of perspective. And what's happening in their heart is they are rejecting the Lord who is in the midst of them. Verse 31 Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought quail from the sea. So God supernaturally brings this wind. The quail from the south comes up and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits. So that's about three feet. All these quail come and they just dump in one spot. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered 10 homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, you can see them gorging on this right now. Before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord, the Lord whom they had rejected was kindled against the people and the Lord struck them down with a very great plague. So he handed them over to what they wanted. And because of their lack of repentance, the Lord struck down the people with this plague. Verse 34. The name of the place was called Kibroth Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazroth, and they remained at Hazroth. One thing that we realize from this is God does not accept complaining. Grumbling and complaining is a sinful rejection of the Lord deserving of judgment. Again, one thing that you might think about through this is what's the difference between Moses who has a chippy attitude and the Jews who are given over to this grumbling and complaining? I think the one thing that is different between the two right now is that Moses went to the Lord with his struggles where the people didn't. So that's chapter 11. Chapter 12, I'm just gonna skim through this. Chapter 12 is complaining about leadership. And in order just to get it, I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. So Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman. There's always a woman at the center of these brawls, isn't there, huh? They spoke against because he married a Cushite woman. For he had married a Cushite woman, verse 2. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they came forward, and he said, hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Verse 7. But not so with my servant Moses. 
He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses, again in a Christ-like way of interceding on behalf of the people, cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed for seven days? So since she had leprosy and more than just spit on her face, let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought back in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. And after the, that, the people set out from Hazroth and camp, camped in the wilderness of Paran. So these are the three episodes that are taking place during this particular part of the journey. I think if we can walk away with something particularly from these chapters, we have to recognize and we have to see this week that complaining is sin. It's kind of a default thing that we move to. It's so easy to get there. But what we see is complaining is sin. It expresses that wrongful craving in our lives it expresses it in such a way where we want that craving more than we want God. We have hardships, so we want ease. We have unmet desires, so we want pleasure. We have struggles with leadership, so we want something different. And complaining is the fleshly, sinful product that comes out of our heart. What's in the cup comes out. What's in the heart we often see is complaining. We lose sight of God's presence in our lives and simply want to be, simply want life to be arranged so that we can find that contentment and pleasure. And yet, what do we do when we see complaining? How should we as Christians move forward and sort of repent of that and follow Jesus? I want you to take your Bibles now and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. As you're turning there, one of the pictures that comes to my mind, especially as summer is starting, is slushy in a cup. And you've got that straw that goes down and you've been enjoying the slushy, but all of a sudden, where that straw was, there's no more slushy. And you're inhaling and sucking up through the straw, but nothing is coming. And so what do you do with that straw? You, you pull it up and you start pounding all of the slush around in there to, to squeeze it back down so that you can get something back up and, and satisfy your thirst or your tastes. As we're going through life, 
the tendency is, oh, we're content, we're content, we're sucking on the straw of life and things are fine. And then it empties out, it's done. And we want something to satisfy us at the deepest part of who we are. We want to be content, and God has created us that way. God has created us with the capacity to feel contentment and pleasure. We want that. And what we have a tendency to do is take that straw, bring it up, and go wherever I can find something. But in John 6, Jesus is saying, come to me. Find your contentment in me. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's appealing to Old Testament imagery here, and specifically, as we'll see, he's appealing to this scene, this episode that happens in the book of Numbers. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they say to him, sir, notice how they address him, sir, whoever you are, give us this bread always. We want it. And Jesus has a surprise for them. He said to them, I am, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus recognizes that we have hungers He recognizes that our heart is thirsty. We have appetites. The hunger that people have in life is a hunger that can only, folks, if we can get this and at least know this, this is so important. The hungers that we have in life can only be fully met in God himself. And this is what Jesus is coming to say. I can give you something so that you won't hunger or that you won't thirst anymore. And how many of us came in this morning just with a complaining, jaded attitude saying, but I want something. It's not going the way that I want. I'm not getting this. And Jesus is over here saying, I have something so that you'll never hunger. I have something so that you'll never thirst. And they're like, well, what is it? And he goes, me. Come to me. Now notice what they do. Skip down to verse 43. Same language from Numbers. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. What are they doing? They are rejecting God who is in their midst right now. Jesus continues and goes on. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to make salvation possible for you. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. 
not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What do we see from Jesus here? Do not grumble and complain this week. Why? Because Jesus is all that we need. When I'm grumbling and complaining, and I'm not saying that life is easy and that there's not hardships and that there's not desires for us to go on with other things, we see Jesus in the garden saying, This is hard. This is hard. He shows us that this is hard. But when we enter into grumbling and complaining this week about the thing that we don't have, we're saying, I've rejected him. He's not enough. Do not grumble. Instead, come to Jesus, who is the bread, who satisfies, who's given his life as flesh, a relationship with him that meets our greatest needs. And we recognize that there are so many things in the world that we can be feeding on this morning. But we want to turn to Jesus this week. We want to turn to him. Turn to him completely and be satisfied.